This is the Moral Science Podcast, and I'm your host, Amber Cazell. In this series, I get to interview experts in my favorite subject, the scientific study of human morality, virtues and vices, evolution of morals, the judgment action gap, character development, the philosophy of morality, transcendent experiences, researchers' moral biases, cultural values, plus the obligatory trolley dilemma. We are going to talk about it all. Dr. Gustavo Carlo is the Millsip Endowed Professor of Diversity and Multicultural Studies in the Department of Human Development and Family Science at the University of Missouri. He is also the director and co-director of two centers there, the Center for Family Policy and Research and the Center for Children and Families Across Cultures. In 2017, he was named a University of Missouri Top Achiever, and he has received numerous awards for his excellence in mentorship. Dr. Carlo's research concerns pro-social and moral development and how cultural variables are related to that development. In particular, he's researched positive development among Latinx youth. In this episode, we discuss different types of pro-sociality and which cultural features are associated with developing different pro-social motivations. Hi everyone, I'm here with Gustavo Carlo, and Gustavo Carlo is actually my academic grandfather of sorts. He's my dissertations chair's dissertation chair. Um, so it's a lot of fun to be here with him today. And he uh, does a lot of work in pro-social development. And pro-social is a word that psychologists use a lot, but isn't necessarily um, how most people talk about it on the streets. And so pro-social development just generally refers to behaviors that benefit others um, and not necessarily the self or only the self. So we'll dive into the nuances of pro-social behavior a little bit later on. But for now, that's the backdrop. And um, Gus and I were discussing his background a little bit. And I have to back him up now. I apologize. You're going to have to repeat some of, some of the things you were telling me. But um, could you tell me a little bit about what inspired your interest in pro-social behavior? Sure. Um, and thank you very much for inviting me to do this with you. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so I, I guess um, we were talking a little bit about um, how I first got interested in this area. And, um, you know, I was sort of a, um, a lost little undergraduate student uh, at Florida International University in Miami. Um, and um, and I was, I happened to have taken a course from uh, Bill Curtinus, who I didn't know at the time, but uh, he was in fact a prominent moral developmental scholar. Uh, and one day he asked in class, he asked if anybody was interested in volunteering to do some research. Uh, so I kind of like meekly raised my hand and um, I had no idea what research was or what kind of research he did. Um, but I raised my hand and uh, he told me to stop by his office one day. So I did. Um, and I thought he was going to talk to me about what research he did and everything. But basically, that first time, he just gave me a book, uh, or actually a couple of books, uh, by existential philosophers, uh, Camus and. Uh, Kafka and uh, Sartre, and um, 
he said, read these little books, and then when you're done, come back and talk to me. <laughs> and so, of course, that was also my first time I was ever exposed to uh, reading original works of existential philosophers. Uh, and these books were turned out to be quite fascinating to me, um, uh, which I found kind of surprising because I didn't think I was really all that interested in philosophy. Um, so I read them. I came back to his office. I was really excited to talk about the books with him. And he basically said, okay, so did you read the books? And I said, yes. And he said, fine, thank you. Let me have them. I'll put them back on my shelf. And he said, come to our lab next week, and I will explain to you what we do. So we didn't end up talking about any of those sorts of philosophical issues that were raised in those books. And later on, I came to realize that, in fact, the reason I found those books to be interesting is because in those books, in those stories, the characters, the protagonists, are actually faced with moral dilemmas. Hmm. And I think it was his way of sort of just seeing to what extent I'm interested in morality and, um, you know, the issues of morality. And um, so we never actually got to ever talk about those books, which is really a shame because I still find those ideas and those uh, stories to be fascinating and interesting. Um, but nonetheless, that was my entrance into this whole area of moral development. So I had, I had mentioned that pro-social behavior is kind of a large umbrella term and people disagree about exactly what types of pro-social behavior exist and which ones are more important. Um, could you give me a little bit of a backdrop of what those different types of pro-social behaviors are, and then specifically which types you're interested in studying. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I'm going to give you a little backdrop on the history of the study of pro-social behaviors a little bit, because I think that will probably help everybody get grounded in why we're doing what we're doing now. Um, Great. So some of the early work was, um, systematic work, was the work by social psychologists, Bib Latine, John Darley, um, who were interested in understanding uh, why people helped or didn't help when someone was in an emergency situation, when somebody uh, was in a uh, you know, dire uh, situation. Um, and some of that was based on, um, there were some national media stories about, uh, for example, what's referred to as the Kitty Genovese case. Kitty mm -hmm. Genovese was a woman who lived in New York who was stabbed in broad daylight and in front of other, uh, observers, neighborhood, uh, people who lived in the neighborhood and nobody apparently went to help her. Um, and the, the perpetrator actually left and came back and then stabbed her again until she died. Um, and so this made national headline news. Uh, this was in the 1960s. I don't remember the exact year, uh, mid-60s, maybe 65 or something. Anyway, 
uh, and Bib, uh, Latine and Darley um, embarked on a series of studies to try to understand why people didn't help Kitty Genovese or someone like a Kitty Genovese in a similar kind of emergency situation. Um, but they focused on trying to understand situational factors. So they were looking at things like, uh, you know, and for example, they found that the more people actually see somebody who seems to be in need, the less likely you see people helping. Um, and so there's, there's a, you know, they talked about really interesting sorts of things like diffusion of responsibility that, that in those large, in those situations where there's a large number of people watching somebody being hurt, uh, people seem to have a tendency to rationalize and believe that someone else is going to help or somebody else has already, you know, called the cops or whatever. Anyway, um, so those were the, uh, a number of studies uh, conducted in the 60s and the 70s, um, and of course, even after that. But um, those were the sort of the first major studies on looking at helping behaviors. Um, but it was from a social psychological perspective. Um, uh, I think you we alluded to this uh, earlier, but um, you know. One of the things about Kohlberg's approach was that he was mostly interested in understanding um, what I, what you could refer to as negative morality, sort of the negative side of moral development. So understanding, you know, um, why people break the law or, um, you know, uh, why they cheat or steal or whatever, um, or why they're dishonest. Um, um, but Carol Gilligan um, um, brought up the idea that morality is not just about those kinds of negative situations, but that, in fact, morality also includes the sort of positive side to it, which involves issues of caring for others, issues of... Um, maintaining interpersonal, positive interpersonal relationships with others, um, sort of a care-oriented sort of uh, idea of morality. Uh, and of course, part of her argument was that in general, women tend to be more moved by those sorts of issues, uh, relatively more so than, than, than men. Uh, we won't get into some of the debates regarding that, but but the the big the major point was that that Kohlberg's theory really, for the most part, ignored or or minimized issues of caring and interpersonal relationships. Um, at the same at about the same time, this other prominent scholar, Martin Hoffman, uh, had been developing a theory of empathy development and and also emphasizing the role of parents in children's moral development. Uh, and of course, one of the tenets of that work was that empathy was a primary motivator of pro-social behaviors. Mm -hmm. So 
Um, so a number of people, and especially in the 1980s, uh, and especially Nancy Eisenberg and her colleagues, uh, started conducting a series of studies um, aimed at understanding the predictors, the correlates, what's related to what are the influences of pro-social behaviors. There was also a lot of work still going on in the social psychology field. Uh, there was one prominent researcher, Dan Batson, um, who did a number of studies, uh, and his take or his argument was that um, there are pro-social behaviors, which, as you said, are actions that benefit other people, but that there are other types of pro-social behaviors, and one of the most interesting forms of pro-social behaviors um, is this idea of altruistic behaviors. Um, and those kinds of actions are actions that are primarily intended to benefit others. So when you think about pro-social behaviors, you can think about a whole range of actions, everything from you know, sharing and comforting somebody to saying something nice to somebody to holding the door open for someone, to helping somebody carry their books, um, to more sophisticated types of pro-social behaviors, like behaviors that involve a cost to the self. Like if somebody is, you know, in, a, in an emergency situation, you know, you might think about whether or not to help that person, even though you yourself might get injured by doing so, right? If you see, if a boy or a girl sees another boy or girl getting bullied by somebody, that's kind of, in, and, you know, and you, and you decide to intervene, that's a very costly type of pro-social behavior because obviously, you know, you yourself might get hurt uh, trying to help that kid. Um, and then there are, other sophisticated forms which involve things like donating money to charity or volunteering for charitable organizations, right? Uh, and some people might volunteer at the local library, but uh, there might be others that do Doctors Without Borders, right? That involve going off to some uh, other country, possibly again, risking your own life or your own uh, at a pretty high cost to yourself. Um, there are forms of activism that, you know, uh, that can be considered pro-social behaviors. Um, and of course, some of the more famous uh, acts of pro-social behaviors that people have studied are, for example, uh, rescuers of Jews during the Holocaust, uh, or people that other scholars refer to as moral exemplars or care exemplars. These are people who have done, uh, you know, uh, who have gone above and beyond uh, what we would normally expect somebody to, to, to do in order to help somebody um, in extreme situations. These may be heroic acts of courage, right? If we think about the 911 attacks, for example, you know, all those firemen and policemen and maybe other people who actually 
tried to run back into the towers and, and help other people get out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and it's important to say right now, I think at the outset that, you know, sometimes we think, Oh, well, but you know, firemen, that's their job. They get paid for it. Well, yeah, but keep in mind that first of all, firemen don't get paid very much. <laughs> Secondly, it's still, you know, you volunteer to become a fireman um, or a policeman or a civil, uh, you know, civil servant. Um, and, you know, and, and most people have other choices. I mean, you can choose not to pursue that career and do something else. The same with nurses and doctors and people like that. So, so one thing I, I always like to talk to students about when I talk about pro-social behaviors and, and altruistic behaviors is that even though the first thing that comes to mind sometimes is, you know, these sort of extremely admirable acts of courage and heroism, um, in fact, altruistic behaviors, in my, from my point of view, actually are occurring every day by, you know, thousands of people every day. Um, it, unfor- you know, unfortunately, or it's just the case that most of the time we don't, they don't get recognized for that those uh, really um, incredible acts of pro-social behaviors, of altruism. Um, but all of that sort of work, work on emergency situations and how people help or no, don't help, work by Batson and others looking at altruistic pro-social behaviors, and then the work that, uh, that Nancy Eisenberg and others have done looking at comforting behaviors and more perhaps everyday forms of pro-social behaviors, all of that sort of work made me think about um, the fact that, to me, all of those kinds of pro-social behaviors are quite distinct. They're quite different. <laughs> and so what predicts somebody that might be willing to comfort somebody who's crying and in distress might not be the same factors that predict somebody willing to, you know, uh, a kid willing to intervene and, and try to protect another kid from being a bully victim, victimized as, as a bully. Um, or what predicts whether or not you open the, you hold the door open for somebody or you let somebody cut in line in a long line or something like that. Those things are quite different. And so that's where we're at right now. I think that um, that's one of the things that, we've sort of made more explicit. It's not, it's not a novel thing. It's not, you know, like some genius sort of idea. It's just that now I think we're starting to study uh, pro-social behaviors in a much more nuanced manner, in a manner by which we can now get a better sense of what are the things that predict and influence uh, some kids to develop these sort of altruistic tendencies. Other kids to develop um, these tendencies to help other people when they're emotionally distressed or when they're in an emergency situation. 
or uh, you know why do some people help tend to help but only when when other people notice that they help you know what versus anonymous helpers um, those are all very we're finding that all those situations are very different and um, and uh, and 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 that you can actually talk about uh, individual differences in these kinds of tendent, different uh, pro-social behavior tendencies. Interesting. So it sounds like kind of the debate that was raging between like Batson with empathy-induced altruism and um, then the other scholars saying that altruism is always self-interested in some way. It sounds like your stance on sort of that debate is that both types of altruism occur and there's going to be different interpersonal tendencies toward each of those types and different predictors of it. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And so, and that's a very important distinction by the way, um, because we can distinguish these different kinds of helping uh, by situational factors, contextual factors. Uh, but we can also distinguish different kinds of helping based on the different underlying motives. Yeah. Right. So some motives are egoistic oriented, selfish, mm. which by the way, of course, that means that not all pro-social behaviors are necessarily desirable. <laughs> right. Um, but other what do you, what do you mean? Well, I mean, so, uh, you know, somebody could do something nice for somebody else, but they may do so in order to gain their trust so that they can later on maybe take advantage of that person. Mm-hmm. So initially, or at least at that initial moment, it, it looks like pro-social behavior. It looks like the person is a very helpful and generous person, but you know, maybe their true colors are revealed later, <laughs> hmm. uh, right? Because um, because pro-social behaviors, uh, by the way, it's real, I mean, they're really important. Pro-social behaviors are really the foundation for, uh, for example, for how we develop uh, relationships with other people, right? Um, if we think about marriages, for example, uh, I, I'm not a marital expert, expert on marriage, but... I think we would all probably uh, agree that if we see a marital couple who don't engage in a lot of pro-social behaviors towards each other, it's probably not a very good quality marital relationship, right? Um, How is it that we make friends with someone? A lot of times we make friends with someone by doing something nice for that person, and then that person might reciprocate and do something nice to you. And over time, then that might develop into a friendship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and intimate relationships the same way. Um, uh, and yeah. then the maintenance of those relationships is, the, the essence of it is really these sort of um, reciprocated pro-social acts with one another. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's particularly fascinating that your work layers on top of all of this this cultural element, which we haven't even gotten to yet. <laughs> um, so what, what piqued your interest in incorporating 
culture into the picture as an element that was relevant to these different types of pro-sociality and how they might um, become manifest? Well, aside from my crazy tendencies, um, <laughs> to make things even more complicated, uh, um, I think, you know, once I started to think about moral development in this much more broader context, and even, for example, when you start to think about uh, whether there are gender differences uh, in pro-social behaviors, which there are, by the way, <laughs> hmm. uh, or gender differences in empathic uh, expressions, which there are, by the way, Mm. Not as not as simple as we oftentimes think, but we can talk about that some other time. Uh, but once you start thinking about those sorts of things, gender is a cultural a cultural it's a culture variable, right? I mean, boys and girls are socialized differently uh, in most societies, in most families, uh, even from birth. Uh, they're treated, boys and girls are treated differently, right? So those, those socialization processes, those ways in which we interact with a boy versus the way we interact with a girl and the way boys and girls are segregated in our society and all that, those, that's all manifestation of cultural processes. Um, so I think it's, it's, critical that we that we start to think about the role of culture mechanisms culture related mechanisms um, parents for example are quite uh, we, we uh, so I have a daughter for example and we each of us have ideas and beliefs about how to raise a child right um, and those beliefs and ideas probably were transmitted from uh, your parents or your grandparents or from uh, other, you know, previous caregivers. Um, and also there were ideas that you may have internalized from observing, you know, the media and uh, interacting with other people or watching other parents interact with their kids, you know, when you see a parent, like the kid throw a temper tantrum in a grocery store and you watch a parent and, and see how they react to their kid throwing a temper tantrum, you like, ooh, I don't think I want to do that with my kid. Or, oh, that's a really good parent. That's a pretty cool reaction, right? So we, we gather all these ideas and beliefs about and attitudes about how to raise our children. And one of the things that we know is that Parents, of course, are inc incredibly important in terms of uh, um, socializing their children's moral development. Mm -hmm. uh, parents serve as models. They talk to their kids about moral issues. They expose them to certain experiences. You know, they, they let them watch certain movies that have certain moral messages. They don't let them watch other movies or other things. Um, that have different kinds of moral messages. They might take them to church where they hear about moral issues and moral values and moral behaviors. Um, so it's 
it's you know we, we culture is embedded in in every level of our existence um and um and so it's just i don't know i think it's kind of um it makes no sense to tr to try and, and you know to act as if you know kids are being raised morally in this sort of sort of social vacuum you know like this mm -hmm. cultural vacuum um and when you look at culture group differences, when you actually look at the evidence that exists out there, we actually do find some uh, relatively reliable and consistent differences between different culture groups, ethnic groups and racial groups, um, nationalities in terms of, again, their beliefs, their moral values, moral beliefs, uh, how they raise their children uh, to be moral beings, and then we also see differences in moral behaviors. So biology is important, no doubt. Let's not, you know, overlook that. Um, genes, temperament, all those sorts of things are incredibly important as well. Uh, situational factors might be important, but then there are these cultural-related mechanisms that are also uh, influencing children's development, moral development. So what are some of the most striking cultural mechanisms that you found influence moral development? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. So um, first of all, most of the work that has looked at culture-related mechanisms associated with moral development uh, have been, uh, for the most part, most of it has been sort of centered on uh, parenting practices, hmm. different sorts of parenting practices that you see uh, in different ethnic racial groups. Um, or there's been research, um, a lot of the other research that we've done or some of the other research that we've done is focused on things like um, cultural values. Um, so we look at certain values that seem to be more strongly endorsed in certain culture groups than in others. Um, we've looked at things like um, cultural related stressors like discrimination experiences that ethnic minority, racial minority kids may be exposed to. Um, uh, We've looked at ethnic identity um, or the extent to which uh, um, ethnic minority kids uh, closely identify with their ethnic heritage or the extent to which they reject their ethnic heritage. Um, um, anyway, so, so those are some of the difference. So some of the culture-related processes are internal psychological processes um, that we try to assess in children themselves, uh, and other mechanisms are more observable kinds of practices that parents engage in that send different messages, culture-specific messages, to their kids. Mm -hmm. um, and we've done a lot of that work uh, uh, mostly with uh, Latino, Latina um, populations. 
in the U.S. And what have you kind of found, like what cultural, whether that's values or parenting practices, how, what are those value differences and, and parenting differences and what are the outcome differences as well for the children? Sure. Um, so uh, let's see. So where to start? Um, so um, some of the work, uh, I think some of the more most interesting work has been, uh, for example, research that we've conducted um, that I've conducted with other with my colleagues and one of my other mentors, by the way, George Knight, uh, whom I have collaborated with quite a bit. Um, and in one study, for example, actually in a couple of studies, we've showed we showed that um, that uh, U.S. Mexican parents. Uh, parents of Mexican heritage in the U.S. Um, who strongly endorsed, more strongly endorsed the, um, the value of familism or familismo, um, which is this, you know, the extent to which you identify with the family unit, the extent to which you uh, support the family the ex- and you feel an obligation or a duty to the family. Um, that those parents who more strongly endorsed the, that that cultural value were more likely to engage in parenting practices uh, aimed at fostering that value in their kids. So they were more likely to encourage their kids to, for example, do things with the family instead of do things with their peers. You know, like you know, be it be home for dinner or. Uh, attend a family event instead of you know going to the movies with your friends or that those sorts of things so they would engage in these sorts of practices that either implicitly or very explicitly place the family in front of you know other other issues Um, and then those kids that reported that their parents engaged in those kinds of practices were more likely to actually endorse familism values themselves. Hmm. And finally, last but not least, those kids that more strongly endorsed familism values were actually then more pro-social and they would engage in higher levels of pro-social behaviors that were typically and commonly uh, exhibited uh, in uh, in the family in a, in the family context. So, were so, they more likely to display or to exhibit all types of prosocial behaviors, or just a specific subset? Yeah, just a specific subset. So, they were more likely to exhibit. Uh, for example, they were more likely to comply when they're asked to help, like help around the house or mm. like, help with chores. They're more likely to help in um, emotionally evocative situations. If somebody was crying or something like that, then uh, you know, comforting them. And they were also more likely to help in um, if there was any kind of crisis. Um, somebody was experiencing a crisis, um, but those that familism value did not predict uh, was not more likely to predict, for example, altruistic helping, like helping. Uh, uh, with little expectation for 
any kind of self-reward. A return. Okay. A return, yeah. So they were so, less likely to help like a third party. They weren't less likely. They just, it oh, just, it, it wasn't associated with the, those other kinds. There wasn't an effect. Helping. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, now, yeah, anyway, yeah. So that's, uh, that's kind of neat. So endorsing some of the Latino, Latina values seem to increase certain types of pro-sociality or have no effect on the other types. Yeah. Actually, I'm sorry. I take it back now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because uh, you're right. Uh, we actually did find that family, those kids who endorse familism were less likely to engage in these uh, um, helping behaviors uh, um, that were primarily uh, for the other people's benefit without any kind of self-reward. And, and the reason I was a little confused um, is because, um, well, first of all, because it was kind of a surprise finding for us. But, um, but secondly, because in another study, we actually um, didn't find it to be related to that kind of helping. So in one study, we found it to be related in another study, which was a longitudinal study, we found that it was negatively related. We think it might have been negatively related because we think that familism value probably and, uh, promotes more helping behaviors within the family unit, perhaps in-group to, to uh, in-group members uh, rather than to out-group members. And so that's why we think that it it's either not related to altruistic or sometimes it's negatively related. Um, what's interesting though, is that in that same study where we found that it was less likely to uh, uh, result in altruistic behaviors, those same kids who endorsed, who uh, more strongly, who had a stronger sense of ethnic identity, that stronger sense of ethnic identity was actually positively related to altruistic helping. Hmm. And, um, and so what we're, what we, what we tried to explain and we, you know, we don't know for sure, um, is that if we think about, you know, what are the, uh, components of ethnic identity? Um, if you are more, if you view your sense of self as more closely aligned with your ethnic heritage, then that means that not only are you more likely to endorse, for example, familism values, but you're also more likely to endorse other, other traditional cultural values. And hmm. some of the other cultural values that Latinos usually strongly endorse are things like respect for others. Um, and there's this one value that uh, is termed um, bien educado, which translates into well-educated. Hmm. But it's not related to formal education. It's related more to being a well, uh, a person of high moral character. So we think that ethnic identity in contrast to familism, might be positively associated with more altruistic helping because it encompasses a number of other values that we think might actually promote that more selflessly oriented kind of helping. 
whereas familism is a much more narrow value, which might be related more to helping people that are that you view or you identify with as part of your own um, family unit. So have you looked at um, any other facets of cultural differences? So that seems to be a focus on um, like how a stronger communal orientation might affect pro-social behaviors. Have you considered other types of value changes that might differ from the East and West, for instance, or, or just other cultural groups in general? Um, well, we have looked at, um, in one study, we looked at, um, Latino kids who differences between, uh, between Latino kids who endorsed this sort of collectivist, um, these collectivist values. Um, and so collectivism is this broader sort of um, idea or notion uh, that encompasses that group orientation that you referred to, mm-hmm. this sort of community orientation, right? Um, and that's something that researchers have documented that there are differences between, uh, for example, white European American uh, 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 populations and uh, Latino populations that Latinos seem to endorse more strongly endorse this or have this collectivist orientation, whereas uh, European Americans tend to have a more individualistic orientation. Um, And uh, in that one study, we found that um, that that maternal involvement, their Latino mothers who were more involved uh, in their in rearing their Latino kids, um, that that seemed to foster more collectivist orientation in their kids, which in turn actually uh, predicted uh, more pro-social behaviors, in, uh, including uh, altruistic behaviors. So having that orientation towards the broader community seems to be associated with that more selfless uh, form of helping. Is there Uh, any, um, by the way, by the way, it was negatively associated with, uh, a more selfish oriented form of helping or egoistic motive, motivated form of helping. Uh, which is helping in front of others, in front of an audience. Because a lot of times when we help people, if we have a tendency to help people uh, in front of others, a lot of times it's because we're trying to either elevate our own social status or perhaps gain the approval of other people. Sometimes we help other people to get their approval, right? So that was negatively associated with that collectivist orientation. So is the inverse of that, uh, like, are there any instances in which, um, like, white Caucasian Americans having done other types of pro-sociality to a larger degree? Um, Or is that simply just that one effect of they seem to have these more selfishly motivated pro-social behaviors down? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, um, so, uh, 
Um, first of all, we actually have not conducted a, a lot of studies where we directly compare helping uh, between white European Americans and Latino, Latina um, kids and adolescents. Yeah, I imagine um, that's, I, I imagine those kinds of studies, you've probably ruffled a lot of feathers in your time just in general. Oh, so, I mean, um, I probably haven't, well, maybe I have, but um, I mean, um, part of it is actually has to do with um, my interest in trying to understand um, these culture-specific mechanisms. So it makes it, when you're interested in things like ethnic identity um, or discrimination experiences and, 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 uh, and specific values that might be more prevalent in certain populations than in others, then it makes it really difficult to directly compare across those different populations because, I mean, I'm certain there are white European-American kids who experienced some kind of discrimination, but probably not as much discrimination as Latino, Latina kids. And so, so it makes it very difficult to directly compare these different models that explain behaviors within each of those groups, right? So a lot of our work has focused, we've done what, what, what scholars refer to as within culture uh, studies. We're trying to really un understand differences between Latino kids and Latina kids who exhibit high levels of pro-social behaviors and those who exhibit low levels of pro-social behaviors. Mm. Um, doing those cross-cultural comparisons that a lot of other people like to do, uh, that entails a very different kind of study design. And that's, those designs are really meant to answer, for the most part, different kinds of questions. Like, if you're interested in knowing you know, whether one group ex exhibits more, uh, you know, higher levels of one kind of behavior than the other. That's kind of interesting, but not as interesting to me as the, these other kinds of designs that where we're trying to really tease apart what are the factors that, that promote, that most promote these pro-social behaviors in Latino and Latina kids. Mm or in white European and American kids. So we do the same kinds of studies, but looking at different kinds of variables, different factors with white European American samples. Now, I did say that there are some exceptions. We have done a couple of cross-cultural studies because people are interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, and what we have found is pretty interesting. Um, um, in one study, in fact, I think it might be the only study that I can think of. Um, we found that um, that uh, Latino kids actually were more likely to engage or report that they engaged in these um, uh, public forms of pro-social behaviors than European-American kids. European-American kids were more likely to report altruistic behaviors than Latino kids, hmm. which is very, very interesting. But 
it actually aligns well with some of the other cross-cultural research that has been done by other people. Um, where, for example, in a classic uh, six-culture study, uh, it was reported that kids from New York were more likely to help strangers hmm. than kids from Kenya, a collectivist-oriented uh, society. But kids in Kenya were more likely to help uh, relatives than New York kids. New York kids were less likely to help relatives. Um, um, Do you think that that kind of a finding is contextual? So like depending on who you perceive to be the in-group at a given time? um, Well, actually you were warm, but we actually think that it is contextual, but it has to do with opportunities to help strangers versus family members. Could you unpack that a little bit more? So it turns out that the kids in Kenya, for example, rarely interact with strangers. Okay. They, they, most of the time they interact with relatives and, uh, or, or members of their own community, but they're not strangers. Mm. Kids in New York actually interact more with strangers than kids in Kenya. And we actually demonstrated that in that one study um, that we published where we compared kids from Kenya and kids from New York City. Uh, we demonstrated that part of the reason why we found those differences is not perhaps so much due to any sort of difference in their underlying motive to be more altruistic, or apparently more altruistic by helping strangers, but rather it has to do more with, with uh, their opportunities that they're faced with. Mm-hmm. Remember that I mentioned that um, we're, we segregate uh, in our society where we, we are much more structured and segre- segregated, um, and we are much more segregated along dimensions of gender. Mm-hmm. So boys and girls are... We separate them and, you know, uh, they're more likely to be separated in activities and events um, and school events and things like that and sports and all that kind of stuff. Um, But we're also age segregated more so than kids in Kenya. Hmm. So kids in Kenya, for example, they are more likely to be in mixed age groups and also mixed gender groups. Um, there isn't as much segregation. Mm. Um, so they really get to know each other pretty well. Um, and it's a much more, obviously, you can imagine it's, it's a more inclusive community than kids who grow up in New York City. So, yeah. Yeah. so those, those are important contextual factors that we should never overlook because it could mislead us into thinking that, oh, well, kids in Kenya are not altruistic, but actually we don't know. I mean, they may be. It's just that they don't really run into a lot of situations where they, uh, where they need to help a stranger. Yeah. Um, so what are some of your current projects and 
future directions of research? What are you kind of thinking about right now as the new challenge? Oh, um, well, um, so one of the newest endeavors that we've embarked on is, um, and we've been trying to do this now for a few years, is um, we're really, really interested now in, um, so for example, we, I mentioned that we've done some research on discrimination experiences and how that impacts pro-social behaviors in Latino kids. And what we find is that those experiences in general undermine altruistic helping. Mm. Um, and we think that's really uh, unfortunate because we think that um, not only does that mean that these Latino kids and Latina kids are uh, less oriented to, towards the needs of others and, uh, and really more concerned about the cost of helping um, other people. Um, but we think that that ultimately might result in greater um, separation of ethnic minority kids from majority kids. Um, that they may actually be more likely to help their own uh, in-group, their own you know, uh, family members and maybe other Latinos, uh, but maybe less likely to help um, you know, kids from majority society. Um, and that would be really unfortunate because already being minority status, there's already some segregation of these communities and that can lead to more misunderstanding between these different ethnic racial groups and communities. Um, so, so based on that sort of recent work that we've done, we've now shifted over to trying to understand what we call discriminatory pro-social behaviors. So we're really trying to get at this idea of um, um, how do children develop prejudice and discrimination and these sort of ethnic racial biases, uh, and then how those racial attitudes and uh, biases and ethnic biases and attitudes then predict uh, helping out-group members versus in-group members, right? Um, and so um, we call it the extensivity project. And uh, the idea is really, you know, uh, obviously, hopefully understanding how these things develop first early on, uh, and then what are the sort of intervening mechanisms that might either exacerbate those biases and, and resulting in, you know, uh, in more discrimination in pro-social behaviors, uh, or the things that might actually you know, mitigate and reduce those, uh, the detrimental consequences of, uh, of those biases. Um, so we, we, you know, we've been, we have a couple of, uh, we've been working on some uh, grant proposals to try to um, collect data on. We've already collected some pilot data. Um, and uh, I'm doing this work with colleagues from Arizona State University, Nancy Eisenberg and Tracy mm -hmm. Stinrad, uh, and also with a former, uh, with another, um, with colleagues, um, 
Jeff Liu from Texas A&M University and uh, Debbie Leibel from Lehigh University. So it's really exciting work. It's a little more challenging, and uh, but I think it's it's obviously very critical work given the current uh, challenges that we're facing in our society. Actually, this is a global phenomenon. You know, so um, there are challenges that many societies are facing right now in terms of um, really trying to reduce ethnic racial conflict and misunderstandings and and, yeah. uh, and trying to encourage more positive social interactions between people. And this has very important moral implications, obviously, because, I mean, um, these, these are things that, these biases are things that kids can acquire early on and clearly can result in different moral outcomes, right? Yeah. Either more hostility towards outgroup members or less pro-social behaviors towards those outgroup members. Yeah. So. Um, I just want to ask you a couple more questions. I know sure. we're starting to run a little long. Um, it seems that as you've been talking, I've been picking up on just a sense that it seems you favor pro-social behaviors that are altruistic as being more favorable in some way. You haven't said this explicitly. Um, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I'm correctly picking up on this or if that's a mischaracterization. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, I, I probably haven't said enough about altruism and my thoughts on it for you to actually make, reach a, a sort of accurate conclusion about my views on it. I, I, um, I, I should state that um, um, even though in some ways we do sometimes characterize altruistic behaviors as more desirable and even more desirable than the egoistically motivated forms of pro-social behaviors, um, uh, that would be, that, that would be a, a, I think, a, a terrible mistake for me to, you know, give off that impression because there are circumstances. Well, first of all, all pro-social behaviors are socially desirable. They're mm -hmm. certainly more socially desirable than, than anti-social behaviors. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, we, we, we place this in the proper broad perspective. I mean, if we're going to err on one side of the, equation let's err on the side of promoting pro-social behaviors even if those behaviors may be egoistically motivated because right. they do result by definition they result in benefits for others okay um now um it's also so that's a b that's we also need to keep in mind that uh for example the that public form of pro-social behavior that I mentioned, where you might engage in that behavior to gain someone else's approval, that's not a, that's inherently bad either, right? I mean, a kid that does that kind of behavior, you know, in front of his or her teacher to gain the teacher's approval, that's not inherently bad, right? Um, 
or the kid that does that, you know, um, in front of his or her friends to, you know, to, to, uh, to try to fit in with that group. Right. That's not inherently bad. I mean, when it gets bad is if, if it goes in that other direction where you are doing that and you're simply doing that in order to take advantage of somebody later on. And at that point, it actually then really no longer is pro-social behavior. It becomes, you know, aggressive or anti-social behavior. Um, by the same token, on the other side, with altruistic, there are two, two things that we need to keep in mind. Number one, uh, altruistic behaviors can be very risky. And so, um, you know, in fact, there are some scholars that talk about pathological altruism um, and this idea that perhaps some people might engage in altruistic behaviors uh, at the cost of their own, you know, personal health and well-being. Um, and so that, that can be risky, very dangerous for that individual. Um, and, um, you know, and may not, you know, certainly won't, wouldn't be adaptive for, for that person, even if, if it benefited other people. So there's gonna, there may be a negative cost or price associated with engaging in altruistic behaviors. And that's not necessarily the kind of thing that as a parent, for example, I wouldn't want my kid to take unnecessary risks, hmm. right? I don't think any parent would want that. Um, um, so, so, you know, so there are risks associated with that kind of, but the other thing to keep in mind about altruism is that all of these forms of pro-social behaviors, including altruistic pro-social behaviors are not, um, um, how do, how do I say it? They're not independent of one another. I mean, um, the best example that I often give is if we think about gang members, well, gang members are extremely altruistic, <laughs> right? Uh, but they're altruistic to their own gang members, right? And they're extremely antisocial to the outside world, to their, you know, to members, to out group members, people who are not members of their own group. In fact, you know, there will, some of them might be willing to risk their own lives to save their fellow gang members' lives, or, you know, they might be willing to engage in very risky, dangerous behavior. So you could consider gang members to be extremely altruistic. Um, but again, we have to place it in proper context. Um, that example tells us, informs us that, and reminds us that, you know, kids can be, you know, we can have all kinds of different combinations of kids, kids who engage in frequently engage in altruistic behaviors and don't engage in other kinds of pro-social behaviors, or they engage in other kinds of pro-social behaviors, but not altruistic. You know, I mean, I'm, who are we or who is anyone to say that, you know, one form of altruist or pro-social behavior is necessarily or inherently better than any other form? Um, because I think we have to place it in proper context and, um, and understand that, um, that there may be uh, a negative sort of side to engaging in any of these 
kinds of pro-social behaviors. Um, uh, just as much as there might be a negative side to, you know, not engaging in some of these uh, types of pro-social behaviors. Yeah. So, so it sounds like you also have a slight flavor toward um, applying your work as well, though, in the real world. Like you had mentioned, discrimination is a real problem and it can have bearing on pro-social behaviors. So help me kind of understand how you take some of your work and apply it. Um, are you sort of a pluralist that you would say, yeah, these all type, all these types of pro-social behaviors have their place and, and that's good. Let's leave it alone. Or, um, how do you sort of apply your findings of cultural effects while, also not taking a firm stance on what sorts of pro-social behaviors are favorable or not favorable? Um, well, so I'll, you know, I'll start out by maybe backtracking a little bit. Um, I think overall, I view pro-social behaviors as generally favorable. Right. You know, these instances that I raised, I, I, I see those instances as context-dependent, you know, culture-dependent, person-dependent, um, and content-dependent, right? Um, so, in other words, there's always exceptions to the rule, and that's really what I wanted to relay in terms of this little discussion that I had okay. just a little while ago is that we can always think of specific circumstances under which some of these behaviors may have negative connotations or more negative connotations or more favorable, favorable connotations. But in general, as I said very early on, I don't want people to get the wrong impression. Yeah. Relative to antisocial behaviors, <laughs> relative to kids, how is it that kids learn to be aggressive towards others? How is it that kids learn to, uh, you know, do illegal drugs, engage in vandalism, you know, cheat and lie and steal and all these other sorts of things? Um, relative to those sort of antisocial behaviors and tendencies, in general, pro-social tendencies are favorable. I view those things as favorable. Yeah. And again, I, I tend to err on that side rather than the other side. Um, and we need to keep in mind that this old adage applies here, the, the cliche that you know, the absence of negative behavior does not equate to the presence of positive behaviors. Mm. Um, and you know, again, the gang member example is a good example of that, right? So you might observe antisocial behavior, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is an absence of pro-social behaviors, right? Mm. They certainly have the capacity for pro-social behaviors, but it may be channeled in a particular manner or towards a particular group. So yeah. I think that's really important to keep in mind. Um, so in terms of applied implications, um, the fact that we have to consider context and culture and take those things into consideration 
means that the intervention approaches need to be culturally embed, embedded and contextually embedded. So, for example, I, I mentioned, um, you know, uh, the finding that kids in New York may be less, like, less, less inclined to help uh, family members and, um, 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 and more inclined to help strangers. Well, I think, you know, um, implications, one sort of implication from that is that, you know, if we want to foster more pro-social behaviors in New York City kids that are targeted towards, you know, towards fellow family members, then we should think about programs uh, or perhaps uh, whether they be uh, giving those kids more opportunities to help family members, you know, maybe parent education programs where we teach parents that, you know, uh, you know, maybe, you know, from early on, we should be um, assigning more chores and responsibilities to kids, uh, household chores and responsibilities and expect them to help around the house and help relatives and those, you know, um, because if we don't engage in those kinds of practices that, that promote that family, those family kinds of oriented helping behaviors, then why should we expect them to be helpful to family members? Right. You know? right. I mean, right. So, um, you know, we, we've, we've been doing some studies recently looking at uh, the use of social parents who use, who frequently use uh, social rewards versus material rewards. And we find that the parents who rely on, on giving kids gifts or money for helping, right, mm -hmm. that those kids actually uh, don't seem to exhibit altruistic behaviors later on, mm. right? Yeah. And they tend to be uh, actually, it, that also doesn't foster more empathy in those kids. Whereas mm. the parents who use social rewards, when your kid does something good, they will just show their approval. They'll, you know, they'll give them a hug. They'll show some expression of love or praise. Um, those parents that use those kinds of practices are more likely to have kids who exhibit altruistic behaviors, and they're more likely to have kids who exhibit uh, higher levels of empathic uh, tendencies. So, so you can get into... I think really interesting intervention programs and policy programs that have to do with these sorts of practices and mechanisms that some kids may have access to and other kids might not have access to. Um, and, uh, and then hopefully, you know, in the end, these are all things that might help us promote more, you know, sort of, Harmony in our in our communities and in our societies, uh, in our families, uh, you know, in our schools, uh, you know, more cooperation and uh, yeah. and more more pro sociality, um, kindness towards each other. Yeah. So it sounds like you're not thinking that these um, values 
need to be a trade-off that you can promote both types of pro-sociality simultaneously as a parent um, or, or whatever given context. Is that, is that yes. fair? Yeah, that's fair. That's absolutely fair. Yeah. So going back to like the parents who give their kids um, like material rewards, if parents give their kids material rewards and social rewards, is that related to both types of pro-sociality in the future? Or do, do the material wa- rewards sort of undermine um, yeah. undermine the pro-social development, kind of like the over-justification effect sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, uh, unfortunately, the kinds of research that we do doesn't directly address that specific question. Okay. Uh, because we're looking at what, uh, what we're looking at and what we're finding is that when you look at both kinds of practices simultaneously, uh, we find that there are unique effects um, for each type, which suggests that perhaps, you know, um, the, the kids that turn out to be altruistic and empathic because their parents tend to use social rewards uh, tend to do so over and above any material rewards that the, their parents might actually use, mm. right? Uh, and by the way, also we find that there is a modest positive correlation between uh, both types of parents, both, uh, both practices. So uh, there's not complete overlap. So it's not the case that there's a group that, you know, uses one, but not the other, but at the same time, they're not the same, you know, they're not both using equal levels of both kinds of practices. So in order to really answer your question, we would need to do a study where we would actually categorize groups of parents into those different combinations, right? Mm -hmm. Look at, look, look at parents that use both kinds of practices, uh, almost equally well, you know, equally frequent. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, verse and compare them to other parents that rarely use either practice and compare them to the groups that use one more than the other. Right. Um, we haven't done that sort of research yet. Um, but, um, but nonetheless, I think these findings are, you know, pretty interesting because they, they suggest that at least in terms of relative use of one versus the other, um, you still see the effects, the positive uh, effects of the use of social rewards, even in the presence of parents who use material rewards. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, Gus, I really appreciate the conversation and um, your insights on pro-social development and how that has a bearing on on parenting as well. Uh, So thank you very much. You're welcome very much. This is enjoyable. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. 
you have questions, comments, suggestions, or requests, contact me at www.moralsciencepodcast.com. The Moral Science Podcast is sponsored by ERA Inc., a research and design think tank that's reinventing how people interact with each other. Music throughout the program is My Crewbie by Kindswider and can be found at freemusicarchive.org.